0: Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, December the fourteenth, twenty twenty-two. This is episode thirty-two seventeen of the Survival Podcast. It is Wednesday, as per usual. Wednesday is an interview day. We have a special guest today, Clara Pito. Clara is born in Hungary, lives in Australia, deep into permaculture. And why wouldn't she be, uh, now living in Australia, being the birthplace of permaculture to a great degree? Kind of the mothership of permaculture, I guess, is the Australian, and and really the Australian suburban permaculture uh, movement is the probably biggest individual single movement of permaculture. I know people like like to think that we Americans are, like, the, the biggest of everything. But the reality is, if you wanted to go find a place where the most permaculture happens um, in a group type of thing, like, if you went out and talked to uh, a thousand people and and find the most people that are doing permaculture, and even know what permaculture is, it's probably like the uh the suburbs and urban areas and kind of urban rural fringe throughout australia and again that makes perfect sense with the permaculture research institute being set up there bill mollison having lived most of his life especially after starting permaculture there etc uh jeff lawton being based out of there though he spends a lot of time in jordan and and doing relief work as well so when i got claire's uh Clara's application to be on the show, it didn't surprise me that permaculture is what she wanted to talk about. She is, again, an Australian-Hungarian medical scientist. She's the president of the Permaculture Central Coast Local Group near Sydney. She's passionate about urban permaculture, and she's a passionate beekeeper and mushroom grower as well. She's going to join us in just a few moments. Uh, we'll have a live stream that we'll be uh, putting into the audio podcast for those listening to the audio versus the live stream. You'll also be able to catch the video if you want to do that uh, by looking up today's show notes. Get all of the stuff we talk about today, resources, etc., including things that Clara might mention. I'll always try to append additional resources in. If a guest mentions something, episode 3217 of the survivalpodcast.com and you can go down and find all the cool stuff in there, including links to today's two sponsors. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is JM Bullion. Uh, I'll tell you what, anybody that listens to this show for any length of time knows I'm a fan of cryptocurrency, and specifically Bitcoin. And so when you say that, people are always like, well, I believe in gold and silver. I believe in gold and silver, too. I believe in the computer monitor. In front. I believe in the house that I'm sitting in. Believe in. Anyway, I also see value in. Stacking gold and silver. Always have, always will. And the place I get my silver, and you should too, is JM Bullion. Now, I'm paid to say that. They are a paid sponsor of the show. But they've also been a sponsor of the show for like nine years now. We have had JM Bullion as a sponsor. That's an incredibly long-term relationship in the world of podcasting. They also will give you a discount if you're a member of my support brigade. Uh, Once a month, you can get discounts uh, on individual purchases. And they will also ship your order for free. And they also have better pricing than like Monix and Atmex and Lear Capital. Uh, And if there ever is a customer service issue problem type thing, which almost never happens, but if there is, I can get the president directly by email in a matter of moments. Now, I I don't know why you would buy from anybody else if you're a listener to this show, if you're looking for silver and gold at this point. I would go with Jam Bullion. In fact, I do myself when I need to make purchases. Somebody wrote in to me, though. I might add this to a feedback show in the future because I did s- save the email. But it just occurs to me now. Uh, J.M. Bullion also has a buyback pro- program. Sometimes you want to sell your silver or sell your gold. And this person said that they do better when they want to sell some silver and gold back through J.M. Bullion's buyback program than they do at local shops and what have you, even with shipping involved. So just something to think about there. Next up today is RidgeWallet.com. I was approached by Ridge Wallet. I guess four years now ago, four years ago. I mean, it was before COVID for sure. Uh, So we're going a four-year range now. That's kind of crazy. But I wasn't sure. And they said, well, let us send you a a Ridge wallet or two. Why don't you put it through its paces and see what you think. They also sent me the backpack and their backup power battery uh, as well. And I was impressed with everything, but especially the wallet. And I kind of was like, I don't know about this because I was always a billfold guy. And I was like, there's certain things I just shove stuff in your billfold. I'm going to have to get rid of. And so I thought, you know, you tell people you can do anything for a month all the time when it comes to changing their diet and things like that. So you can put your billfold on the shelf for a month and put the stuff that will go in the ridge wallet in your ridge wallet carry it for a month and then you can be a big boy jack and determine if you really need to carry the billfold the only thing i lost by carrying my billfold was not having a lump on my ass when i sit in my car being uncomfortable and then taking my wallet out leaving it in my car and not having it to pay when i got to the cash register that's the only thing i lost was the inconvenience of having a lump on my butt I really enjoy the minimalism of the, uh, the, the, the the Ridge Wallet. I love that my ID cards, etc., are encased in titanium, and that way they're not going to get picked up by some sniffer that somebody can make for $18 worth of crap off of eBay. And Ridge Wallet has just a ton of cool EDC stuff now, and members of the support brigade, 10% off everything. So check it out today, RidgeWallet.com. They have an awful lot to offer. Also, real quick reminder before I bring our special guest on, um, we do have a swag shop where you can get TSP branded merchandise, Bitcoin breakout branded merchandise. We have shirts, we have hoodies, we have tumblers, coffee mugs, all kinds of cool stuff with the TSP Val logo on there and, and other things. But we also just added Redneck Hippie Duck Farmer shirts. I've called myself a Redneck Hippie Duck Farmer forever. My wife said, you've got to have a t-shirt for that. Got a couple of different designs, a few different colors. Uh, check it out. You can find it all at TSPC- com. With that, let's drop on into the live feed. And we are live. And with that, I want to say, hey, Claire, welcome to the Survival Podcast.
1: Oh, Thanks, Jack. It's so exciting to talk to you.
0: I- I'm really excited to have you on today. I was saying when we were getting ready to go live here that, that you're coming to us from the uh, Permaculture Mothership. I know it's very early where you're at right now. Um, and you are in Australia near Sydney or in Sydney, I'm not sure which. This yeah, is it's just about
1: prepared. 45 minutes out of Sydney.
0: Okay. Okay. It's like suburbs, outer suburbs, what have you. Yeah. Anyway, can, can we start out with, like, what got you to where you are today before we dig into the, the, the subject proper to speak? I mean, you you probably weren't born into the world of permaculture. I think you well,
1: Here's the thing.
0: Sure.
1: (laughs) I mean, we call it permaculture, and that's the community that I've found here in Australia. Definitely, that's the right word for it. But a lot of it is actually really just what my granddad was doing in Eastern Europe. So I come from the Hungarian Ukraine border, a little village called Kishvarda. And uh, we, I mean, Milk still got delivered in bottles. Like I was only, just to give people background, I was born in 1990. Happy to happy to release that information.
0: <laughs> um,
1: and so, yeah, but even back then, milk came in like kind of glass little bottles. We had greenhouses. My granddad was really into breeding peppers. You'd appreciate that. And we had grafted fruit trees in the backyard. We would go around foraging. So, I mean, we didn't call it permaculture, and my granddad didn't have any books. It was all just how we lived so that we could eat. <laughs> um,
0: you, you so know, I,
1: in a way, I, I did.
0: <laughs> I think people from that part of the world tend to, 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 to be that way. My family's originally from the Ukraine, um, came to the United States about the turn of the 18 to 1900s, actually. Uh, and my grandparents, all the things you're talking about, we did in central Pennsylvania. And I grew up in a very much predominantly uh, immigrant community, mostly Slovakian, So we had Ukrainian, Romanian, Georgian, et cetera, uh, and Irish. Somehow, like, we had all of this kind of Eastern European culture and then Irish. And uh, everybody gardened. Everybody had fruit trees. Everybody had, you know, a few chickens or what have you in the backyard. Yeah.
1: And I'm sure it was different in the cities. We, I just happened to come yeah. from a small little village where everyone knew each other. So that was sort of normal to me when I was a child. And then I guess now that we live in different areas, of course, there's no economic opportunity when you live like that, unfortunately. So yeah. if, you have, if you have big dreams, you've got to move. So we did move. And now we have all these funny words for that style of living. So <laughs> I guess a lot of Americans call it, uh, homesteading some of you call it prepping i mean to us it was just always having food in your we called it a pincer but um i guess it would be like a uh an ad, like a cold room underneath the ground that mm-hmm. you would store all your food and everything in i'm not sure if there's another word for that root and, yeah root cellar so that was just kind of normal and then of course when i came to australia there wasn't even a, really a homesteading culture or anything like that. So permaculture was the best place to kind of fit into that style of living, if that makes sense, particularly if you want to take it into a suburban context.
0: Definitely. So what what made you – it, was it just opportunity that, that had you move to Australia?
1: Uh, it, I mean, as, as beautiful as it was to live like that, If you needed, like if you broke your femur, you know, you were in trouble. If you needed dental work, you know, you were in trouble. So we can kind of romanticize that kind of way of living, but it is a hard life. And it is a life where you either stand still or you leave. So, my mother was very much determined to leave. She wanted a different life. She wanted more opportunities. She wanted to be able to have more economic freedom to travel, to to experience the world. And so, that's why she chose to leave. And then uh, she met my dad uh, here, and then we went back for a little while. And she was not actually an Australian citizen, but I had technically been born in Australia. So... Even though I was born up in North Queensland, kind of an isolated property, and then we went, she was not a citizen, so we went back to Hungary, and then she came back to Australia after getting all my birth certificates translated and everything. And then she rolled me up to the immigration office and said, I'm related to an Australian, which was me in the pram. And so then she got her citizenship, so it was kind of this uh, convoluted way of eventually getting to relocate to Australia. I don't now, think that would fly these days. Yeah, probably <laughs> not. More strict not. Now. Yeah. Yeah,
0: probably not. So um, <laughs> when you started out with your particular property, what I have in my notes is it was pretty much a weed infested block and a rundown house on a modest budget uh, due to ballooning house prices. And. I can really understand that because i worked for a gentleman back in the late 90s named frank who had his uh his son had moved to australia and he was talking about how expensive property was in australia back then right yeah. so that's 1998 1999 and here we sit in the, the you know the, the 20s we finally have a decade with a name again i don't know what we were for 20 years we were the aughts <laughs> or the teens right so we're we're in the 20s so i'm sure it, it, it is a, a challenge Um, But that's kind of one of the things that permaculture was made for is to take less than optimum and make it better than optimum.
1: Yeah, the thing is, it's definitely gotten even more expensive now. And it also depends, though, on how you look at it. So I've got a lot of friends who were in the same position as me, but their decision was, oh, no, I want a brand new apartment. You know, I want everything to be brand new and, and perfect and I don't want to have to do any work. Whereas my attitude was, you know what, Uh, there's the ceilings missing and there's no kitchen, but I'll just pitch a tent and I'll just treat it like I'm camping and I'll just uh, eat salad for a while (laughs) until I get, you know, a kitchen together. So I pretty much kind of camped out in this sort of um, weird situation for nine months, but. I work just down the road at the hospital, so I was able to kind of have showers and get changed and make myself somewhat presentable and then go into work. So there were no problems from that point of view. But, it, you know, again, if you moved into the country, even in Australia, and I'm sure it's very similar in America, there are certain places where property can be cheap. But if you want to live on the coast, you want to live near the beaches or near the economic centers, then, yeah, you're going to be paying a lot. So it is kind of your point of view as well. And yeah, definitely if I could do it all again, I would do exactly the same thing because as well as it kind of aligning with permaculture principles and regenerative principles of I'm taking something and I'm actually making it better than how I found it. The other side of the coin is there's just a great deal of satisfaction you get from transforming something like that and from hard work.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. And 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 how would you say now that what you're doing compares to that childhood you remember from Hungary?
1: Oh, look, it's still it's still very different. I'm yeah. not going to lie. Um, yeah. My life is the reality of the situation is the older I get, the more I appreciate how much easier my life is and of course my grandfather lived through war and now there's war there again and he used to tell me stories about hearing the planes and hearing the bombs and now my cousins are in exactly the same situation which is kind of awful but you know here in australia we we call ourselves the lucky country and we we really are the lucky country like it's you've got to be a real special kind of person to starve in australia like it is just um it is just wonderful the climate is great you know, there's a lot of public resources around. There's a great community. So it's very different. I, and what I have now is really done more out of a sense of partly nostalgia for what how we used to live, but also, I guess, to try and be more healthy, to try and improve your mental health and just to try and build community for when things are not so great and, most of my life things have been very easy running. And I think since the pandemic, there's been a lot more focus on actually, there is a time where I'm going to go to the shop and I'm not going to be able to get lettuce (laughs) or I'm not going to be able to get certain things. And so I guess the last couple of years have been very different to the 20 years before that.
0: Yeah. I I think that I noticed like two extremes with, what happened with uh, inventory in the groceries uh, when the whole pandemic started was one was long-term storage dry goods that most people that bought it didn't even know what they were going to do with it. They just did it because it was the thing to do. And then the other thing was like the 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 really fresh things like lettuce and stuff like that. Like the produce section would just look like somebody like like my flock of chickens went through it or something. There's pieces thrown around and. Everything was gone. And it was amazing how many people that kind of looked at the lifestyle that we're talking about today a little bit down the nose, so to say, or not you know, a little bit weird. Like, oh, that's pretty smart. Like all of a sudden yeah, I was getting a lot more questions, you know, I always have from my audience I've been doing this 15 years. But like people think, well, like, you know, your family must be all on board with them extended family, no, but then all of a sudden, like, well, how do I put a garden in, and, and do you guys have any extra eggs and stuff mm. like that? Like, that went uh, para- parabolically up, uh, yeah. at least at the beginning. Now, I'm seeing people already kind of, you know, forgetting what they remembered really, really quick, I guess would be a way to put it.
1: Well, here, I don't know if it's the same in the States, but here, fresh food, the price increases are huge. So, during yeah. the drought, we had I think about a 35% increase in the cost of food, on fresh foods, just purely because of drought. So then we had the supply chain disruptions, and now we've got a combination of floods and inflation. Mm. So even though the food's available, not many people want to pay for it. And so, of course, when they do put price caps on things, so again, no one starves, they tend to put the price caps on things like grains. Sure. Um, so flowers, grains, things like that, breads, they'll always be cheap, but things like lettuce, fresh lettuce, good quality organic produce, extremely expensive. So, yeah, I'm sort of in the same situation where a lot of people at work kind of uh, I work with a lot of academics, um, university educated people. I'm a scientist and a lot of them uh, sort of look at my hobbies as something that they would never have time for. Um and they enjoy it when I kind of bring stuff in for them, but at the moment it's oh how how did you grow this
0: Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> your scientists figure it out it's a plant, you put a seed in the ground <laughs> and it grows right but well i I'm, it, I'm, I'm
1: very much like i I'm going to come to your house and we're gonna set it up together yeah <laughs> you know like i I'm really excited to have more people growing because we are quite. I think you realize how fragile you are. Like even though I have this great setup and I've grown food for as long as I can remember, you know, I just had a wallaby come through and just (laughs) do so much damage. I don't know if you know what a wallaby is.
0: I know what a wallaby is. It's like a little kangaroo.
1: Yeah, absolute plant murderer. Most of the time he's all right, but he's obviously had a bad day and just decided to trample quite a few of my garden beds. So yeah, Things happen, and the more people around that are growing, the better it is for you, because all those people who now I'm saying, let me, let me help you, let me help you set that up. It's going to take a couple seconds. I've saved seeds. I've saved about a thousand seeds from my lettuces. Let me help you with that. Let me clear up a patch for you. And then next time the wallaby or a hailstorm or who knows what wipes out my lettuce collection, I'm going to be knocking on that door. Remember how I helped you? <laughs> Have some lettuce
0: <laughs> that's definitely something whenever i find like a new plant or a new variety or something that I, I, i'm like i want this to be part of my life i always give away cutting seeds whatever it takes to propagate it all around me so if i lose what i have that's you, you know we have this term seed bank and people think it has like an ammo can full of seeds or something <laughs> i find that to be pointless your your germination rates going down you know year after year A seed bank to me is get as many friendlies as you can with as much of what you need, and they're growing it and they're reproducing it and they're saving seed. And they're and you do it locally, then they're building local resilience into those varieties, and then you have this 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 basically like a form of cultural capital. uh, Yeah, existing in your own community, and I've always tried to do that. I'll take some, plant them because yeah, maybe I'll need it back someday.
1: Yeah, so um, we have a seed bank through Permaculture Central Coast. So we run our local seed bank and there's another one just a bit down the coast, uh, Lake Macquarie Seed Bank. And we, But we take ownership of that one and we're very sort of, it has to be locally grown seed and it has to be organic and it has to be sort of stored in a particular way. And we take that quite seriously and we've got some amazing volunteers that are in charge of that. They package everything up. They put it all together in a seed bank. And then at meetings, when we hand out the seeds, we say, don't forget, let it go to seed, bring some back for us. And back. that's how we manage that. So, And that's good because a lot of people sort of, again, think when you say seed bank, they think of, yeah, like I've got a shoebox full of, you know, $3 seeds that I bought from the local hardware. And I've just packed them all up. And I'm just hoping that, you know, when something happens, I'm going to pull out that shoe box and I've got all of these seeds. Of course, you know, that's not how it works in practice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that every person that gets into growing their own food has envy of somebody else who they think has life better and easier because of climate soil conditions, et cetera. I think every place in the world has its own unique challenges. Australia is a great place to do permaculture. Like we said earlier, it's the, like the mothership of permaculture, but there's a lot of climate extremes in in Australia. There's floods and fires and drought, and I'm very familiar with drought being from Texas. Um, how has has that affected you both maybe at the macro level, like you were talking about earlier with supply side, but what about even the backyard permaculturists, how do you deal with those challenges?
1: Yeah, so Dorothea McKellar has a poem. I love this sunburnt country, this land of flooding plains, its beauty and its terror. Something along those lines, and that's something that gets quoted a lot. Because we do, we have fires, flooding rains, droughts, a lot of clay, shale, cracked soil. If you're closer to the coast, you've got sandy soil. So there's definitely challenges. The thing that works for us here where i am along the coast is i don't really get frost so that makes life a lot easier that's one thing i don't have to worry about it used to always make my family in europe very jealous but droughts a big problem so we're almost on permanent water restrictions even during the floods not all the councils made water free which is kind of amusing because our dams got to 100 percent but that's kind of a you know twice in a lifetime event for that to happen. Most of the time we're on some type of water restrictions, which means, you know, you're not supposed to be running sprinklers, you know, all the hoses that are sold have had to have like a hand operated nozzle and things like that. You pay quite a bit for water, I would say comparatively. And so those things are definitely a challenge. In Australia, it's abnormal probably not to have a water tank of some type. So all new houses that get put in you're pretty much required to have guttering and some kind of water storage. So I guess it's good in the sense that it's well-recognised and people understand that it's worthwhile to, do, to actually conserve water. So the drought's one thing, fires is another. So most of us live near some kind of bushland, which is really lovely because it's nice to actually have these big beautiful trees and nature around you. It does mean that most people have to think about fires and fire safety During a big fire season, even if you live in the middle of Sydney City, you still end up with some pretty bad smoke pollution. So we were it was sort of ironic that before the pandemic, everyone had already stocked up on P2 masks because we'd just gone through a horrific fire season. And the P2 masks are the one thing that would help you breathe through the smoke because it would actually become an irritant, particularly if you're someone who has asthma or something like that. Children in particular few people that are quite vulnerable to those particulates that are in the air I guess as well as that we just it's very unpredictable weather patterns so you can go from 20 degrees one day to 30 degrees the next day that's in celsius sorry I don't know fahrenheit and all those kind of things do throw up challenges most times the kind of like deciduous plants struggle to know what season it is so like this year I had gladioli shoot up in the middle of winter and I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> okay. So it's, it's interesting, but I would say I still consider it to be an advantageous climate in the sense that, again, people are used to conserving water. We have the infrastructure to be able to conserve water well. And also we're used to fires. So most people understand basic fire safety, you clean out your gutters, rake up the leaves, pay attention to the alerts and pack your car if you've got to leave. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's good and bad bits to it. I wouldn't move. I don't tend to be a grass is greener kind of person. I always think I would rather just water my grass. Oh, I've lost sound for you, Jack.
0: It, I, I had jets go, flying out here, so I had the mute button and <laughs> forgot about it. And, um, I was going to say, one of the big advantages at the suburban urban scale with water is that it makes, if you're doing water collection, or even if you're using well or grid water, irrigation a lot more feasible than trying to do it broad scale. It also makes water efficiency as far as mulching and, you know, shade. Like if you pull shade, a lot of things won't grow, but timing your shade so you have morning and afternoon sun, but late day shade, things like that are a lot easier to do. There's a lot of areas in a standard backyard just based mm-hmm. on infrastructure, adjoining properties, et cetera, that create these little microclimates and all, where you that can be, be yeah. very water-wise in, if you design it right.
1: I would that say would, that so that I can be so a disadvantage so and an advantage. Like I've noticed in a lot of new developments where they're built on floodplains and they've yeah. made the mistake of cutting all the trees down and they've concreted everything. Those things have become what we call heat sinks. Yeah. Of course, now the government's catching on to that and they're trying to fix it. But once you've cut all the trees down, it's very difficult to fix that problem. So they're bringing in all sorts of rules about people having to change their dark roofs to white roofs and, you know, but they're just playing catch up. The problem's already there. They've cut down the trees. They've created the heat sink. Yeah. So that's a problem in some areas. In terms of what you're saying about shade, I don't know if you've got a lot of experience with eucalypse jack, but they're actually very well adapted to that sort of environment and i Mm -hmm. wonder whether they would be good in texas as well because they're very drought tolerant and they've got these sort of thin leaves so even though they are an upper canopy plant they don't behave in the way that most rainforest upper canopy plants would behave in the sense they don't block out the light they have these thin leaves that allow some of the light through so even though you could have a canopy of eucalypts above you you're still not in full shade and that can be really advantageous to gardening in a hot climate. And then in winter, because the canopy is high, when the sun comes lower, it still lets quite a lot of sun through in winter, but protects you from the harshest rays in the middle of sun in summer. So it's quite quite an interesting tree that way. And I really love having them around.
0: I've never seen them in Texas. I don't know how they would do here. We, we use trees that are very similar in that performance style, but they're totally different. Like we use mesquites which are thorny, and we use locust, which is thorny. Uh, But they have that fern-like leaf structure. So like you're saying, they let that dappled shade in. So when you have the kind of sun we do, I live in north central Texas near Fort Worth. And when you have the kind of summer sun that we have, you don't want full sun for most things. What you want is like if you had had magic, you would put a 50% shade cloth over the whole property, if you could do it with your mind or something. And those fern-like leaves, that's about what they end up doing is letting about half the light through. And, you know, in my climate, that's funny. Now, where I grew up in Pennsylvania, you know, you, you wanted full sun for most of the growing season. And if you had even moderate shade, you could see a massive growth decline because you're in a different latitude. You're in a different solar intensity. Everything changed. I think it changes all over. But it's interesting that we have Different trees that fill the same structural role in being a dappled type shade, uh, implement, you know, it's
1: almost like nature evolved like that and had a perfect system functioning before we came and chopped everything down.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, TCG T- Joe here is saying eucalypts are also very flammable. Uh, oh. I think that is true, they will
1: everything's fire. flammable if you're a fire.
0: <laughs> we have a uh, uh, cedar everywhere, and, and man, nothing. It's not even really cedar; it's actually a juniper species, but they call it cedar here, yeah. mountain cedar. Uh, it, actually, and that stuff it's, burns hot, and it—it's crazy how fast it'll go once it gets going.
1: Our native bush is actually designed to burn, so even though they're flammable in terms of the eucalyptus oil in the leaves, the mm-hmm. actual internal structure doesn't burn if it's a if it isn't an extreme fire. So for Tens of thousands of years, I don't even know how long, the uh, local Aboriginal people were doing cold burns. Mm -hmm. So what they would actually go through with their, like, bush sticks and go, I've seen, you could probably see videos of it if you look it up online, and they would burn parts of the forest, and that would actually increase germination. Mm -hmm. But also, when you do a slow, cold burn, it also helps all the animals to get out as well, and that will kind of funnel them into certain areas and so they would maintain that system. And I can not tell you how they came up with that idea. But in actual fact, that's what we're trying to do now. So our government is actually trying to mimic that by doing controlled burns in the off season so that when we do get to the hot summer, we don't get these firestorms. Because once you've got a firestorm, that's no longer the natural burn that the trees are used to. That becomes this horrific, destructive thing. But if you can just do a cold burn, that actually ends up really benefiting the environment.
0: So um, you've also been setting, you've set up a group, uh, a local permaculture group. And can you talk a little bit about what that's like to to run a, a local group of people that are permaculture enthusiasts?
1: Yeah, so I didn't set it up. Luckily, they were already operating before I got here, which is fantastic we're really lucky that we've got quite a few permaculture educators that already exist because actually being the home of permaculture it was actually taught in TAFE and some if you did horticulture or something like that in TAFE you would actually learn a little bit about permaculture and we also had individual permaculture courses that you could do sorry I should say TAFE is like a technical college so that's that's the word for that and yeah, so they had already set up. I just came, put my hand up, decided to volunteer. And since then, we've made quite a few changes. So previously, we kind of met up in the dark and did these kind of formal courses. What we've changed to now since the pandemic is we're going around to different community gardens and we're meeting outside in the sun. People with young families, younger people with kids and things like that are participating a lot more now, which has been really lovely. And we just go through, we do different talks. So we'll talk about seed saving, propagation, how to fill up our seed bank, how to create a pond, all sorts of interesting things. And it's been just really fantastic. It's just really great to, I guess, I've got a few different worlds that I live in because, of course, I've got my work, which is a very technical, scientific sort of crowd. Then I've got my friends who are all kind of millennial women. And then now I've got my permaculture group. So there's only one out of three of those that want to listen to me talk about plants nonstop for hours. And that's the permaculture group. So it's really it's been really fantastic having them there. It's also just a really great resource. So we have a share table and basically whatever you have in surplus, you bring in whatever other people have in surplus and we can change. And we've also got several produce shares around the area. So it's just a really great way to share surplus and get something back in exchange.
0: You've brought the pandemic up a few times. So what's daily life like in relationship to, I find it varies widely by country and area and region here in Texas. We, we pretty much went back to our lives about 60 days into it and said the rest of the world can do what it wants. The United States didn't do that. It was Texas and Florida did that. Mm -hmm. Um, If I want to go, set up an event or do something right now or meet indoors. I, I can do whatever I want. Is, are, are you getting back to that level of normalcy yet in Australia?
1: We have. We've definitely gotten back to that. And, yeah, like you said, there's just slight cult from what I can tell listening to other people or speaking to other, I try and always get my information from actual people and not the internet because I find <laughs> that's, that's a, a, little good bit, idea. It's a little bit easier. And based on different people's experience, there's similarities and there's differences. I would say where I am, which is not in a major city, it was pretty relaxed. He, no, like Australians weren't particularly big fans of masking. So that never lasted very long. There were only really short periods of that. There was kind of like a couple of weeks where the government went a bit mental and tried to bring in all these weird rules about checking vaccination certificates and things like that. And, of course, we didn't really want any part of that. So we decided as well, we've got quite a few older members who do have quite bad immune systems. And when there were quite a lot of different flus going around, we did want to make sure that they were safe as well, or at least that we weren't the ones responsible for infecting them. So, we just decided that, yeah, moving outdoors in the sun, it suits us better in terms of what we do as a group to be in a community garden, and it also just happened to work better when we were at the height of restrictions, that there was that kind of reassurance that all through the pandemic in Australia, being outdoors in the sunlight was, was fine.
0: Excellent. That that yeah. makes its common sense. Um you you also have a big passion for mushroom cultivation. Can you talk about that a bit?
1: Yeah, I feel like uh mushroom cultivation, you know, saying that you have a passion for it, I don't I don't think you can be on the fence. I think, <laughs> I think either you don't do it or you're obsessed. And um I'm definitely in the obsessed category. Uh mushrooms, when you start going down that mushroom rabbit hole, it's uh very hard to drag yourself back out because the more you learn about mushrooms the more you realize how amazing they are and how underrated they are kind of day to day. So one of the best things though, the the reason I came into it was I was watching this program on the news and they were talking about how there was this girl in Africa in sort of sort of a I think it was South Africa I'd be wrong, but in a certainly a, a lower economic region where people often lived To a house. Uh, No one really had a backyard. They had kind of basic shelter and housing. And a lot of people had protein deficiencies as well as different vitamin A, vitamin E deficiencies as well due to inability to get sort of fresh, good quality food. And one of the solutions that she came up with when she was researching this and thinking of how she could help her community was mushrooms. Because mushrooms have quite a great amount of nutrients, micronutrients as well as macronutrients. They've got a decent amount of protein, carbohydrates, all these different types of vitamins. If you actually manage to grow them out in the sun, they're a fantastic source of vitamin D as well, which is quite rare. And what she was doing was just collecting waste products from different cafes, different restaurants. And yeah, using the waste products, she was able to get people to just grow mushrooms under their sink or in a bucket in their house. And it was just this really cheap, easy source of food. And when I saw that, I was like, why isn't everybody doing that? You can grow food from waste. This is actually amazing. And not just any food, really high quality food. So I just never turned back and I've just been growing different types of mushrooms since then and trying to, trying to spawn the mushroom love to everyone who I can. So I've been running little workshops, which I just do for free. But then I also encourage people to bring along some money to purchase the different spawn varieties. And that means that I can sort of justify spending a bit more money getting these different kind of exotic different strains that I like.
0: Are you primarily growing indoors with your mushrooms? I mean, I have gone out of my way because I like to do things the easiest, least amount of work input way possible. And I have done everything I can to try to find a variety of mushrooms that I can establish on my property in this climate and the answer is no uh <laughs> it's, it's pretty much what it is uh, it. i can grow mushrooms indoors i have and it, it's it's frustrating because i did grow up in in central pennsylvania where like no one would grow a mushroom you just had different times of year that you went in the forest and picked different mushrooms or mushrooms everywhere mushrooms in the yard mushrooms at the high school football field like mushrooms 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 yeah so uh, have you have you determined anything that does well for you in an outdoor climate or are you pretty much an indoor grower
1: no so i'm on the edge of the bush so i actually back onto area that is filled with mushrooms um many mushroom forages go out there in the summer and i'm sort of got a problem where as soon as i find a patch someone else finds it so i've got to kind of find yeah. a solution to that um but yes it, in terms of, I'm not sure exactly what your climate is, but I think I've heard you say that you're on rock.
0: I'm on rock and it's extremely yeah. dry and extremely hot. That's yeah, not so obviously friendly.
1: that's the enemy of mushrooms.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, hot, <laughs> sh- dry rock, not good.
1: <laughs> I'm sure in some of your raised beds, though, you would probably notice quite a lot of mycelium because any good yeah. quality compost and soil is going to have mycelium. Fungus plays an important role in breaking that down. So if you wanted to take a bed that you know you're going to be irrigating and that has quite a good compost, you know, amount in it, or even if you have an in-situ composting system where you might put a few coffee grounds and stuff like that, that would be a good place to seed with something like kingstraphoria. So they would quite happily grow alongside your vegetables and they wouldn't be taking any nutrients. They would actually be helping. In terms of something like a shiitake log, now, you could still manage that, but you would have to think about how you provide them with a bit of shade and moisture. So if you – I think you said you might have some greenhouses where you have hydroponics. Yep. So yep. somewhere like that, well, there you go. That's going to be quite a humid environment. So if yeah. you did want to do some shiitake logs, you could stack them up in your greenhouse and just – they will live off that natural humidity. When you want them to fruit, like if you want to force fruiting. Yeah, yeah. Soak them in the water. They won't upset your fish or anything like that. I do that the same thing with my fish ponds. Soak them in the water for a couple days, pull them out, smash them on the ground, prop them back up. That'll cause them to fruit if you've got a big event and you want to have shiitake for it. I do mostly grow my more exotic varieties indoors because, well, one, they're really pretty to look at. So I like seeing them there on my kitchen bench. It also means that I'm guaranteed a yield because my kitchen is naturally fluctuating in, it just so happens, the exact right temperatures that the mushrooms love. So we're fluctuating between like 80 and 25 degrees. We've got fluctuations in humidity. That just happens to be the perfect environment for a mushroom. Your bathroom or your laundry would be a similar situation. And so I just use, uh, I don't know if I have a bucket handy. Here we go? I just use two litre buckets like this and I stack them up and down. And You can see this one's about to fruit. So I just stack those up in my kitchen and I've just got a constant source of mushrooms that way. So if it's going to be, I'm, I don't eat meat, I'm a vegetarian, so for me, mushrooms are a constant part of my diet as a meat alternative. So for me, it's just having that constant source of food.
0: I could see see definitely growing the hell out of mushrooms if I didn't eat meat. Because, (laughs) well, I'm not going to not eat meat. We won't go there, but but it is. Well,
1: I yeah, I eat a lot of that. Is
0: the thing that can stand in well, in my opinion, especially things like like shiitakes, like big beautiful portobello's, like oyster mushrooms, like they are great stand-ins for that. If I was trying Mm -hmm. to make a meal and fill that role. That I would go there before I went to tofu or something yep. like that.
1: So when I went through a phase of just not wanting to go to the shops and I was just, I just got into this mood where I was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to deal with it. Um, I've got chickens. So I would get some eggs from the chickens. I would get some mushrooms from my mushrooms. I would get greens from the garden and I could just eat like that for days. You know, It's a perfectly healthy, well-rounded meal with everything I need.
0: Yeah. I, I find that, if you're looking at it from a nutritional profile, it's much easier to make a vegetarian diet work, in my opinion, anyway, than a vegan diet. Having things like eggs alone, right? There's huge nutritional uh, input for the human body, and it, it probably makes things a lot easier. It's I, I could live they, that way if I had yeah. to. I'm not I'm not gonna live without <laughs> any. Like you can't take cheese and eggs away from me. I'm sorry. I, I just I'm not going yeah. there in a way.
1: I've got a I've got a few friends that are vegan and I it to me to maintain health seems like a lot of hard work but I'm not into telling other people what they should eat or what they shouldn't eat I think that's a decision you make on your own you don't need me to pipe up about it but I will say that my friends who are vegan when they see how my chickens live they're like oh I'll well, I'll eat those eggs I'm like yeah because my chickens have a better life than people in Eastern Europe right now
0: Yeah, You know, that's that's something that I I generally agree with the not the nutritional, but the ethical reasoning of the average vegan for their decision. There's there's a nutritional reason that some make and another is an ethical decision. And when you look at a CAFO Hmm.
1: or a chicken, chicken farm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which I would just say it's a CAFO for chickens. Right. Like, like, no, I, I understand. That's why I don't. I generally don't eat food that comes from that system. You know, I I buy beef from a guy that's a mile down the road. I raise my own ducks and chickens and what have you, and um, we're 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 way comfortable with that system because no one sees it, right? If you saw it, you might not be so comfortable with it, and they go out of their way to make sure in general, it. people don't see yeah. you know?
1: Actually, I'm sure it's similar in America because I've got a few American friends that I've spoken to who say that, you know, agriculture has a huge amount of control in terms of the government and regulation. Uh, these massive big companies, it's the same in Australia. There are actually rules about not being able to go near people's farms or not publishing the location of mm-hmm. farms now. That's actually illegal because that is what was happening. People were actually going to the farms with a camera and saying, this is where your food's coming from, and that caused so much uh, negative publicity that yeah. they've actually put in laws to ban you from seeing where your food comes from. Which, when you think about it, is just crazy. And of course, any time you've seen a, a a chicken, like I, I have to say, if if you know, I don't. I think Australian beef is raised pretty well. We just happen to have a lot of land, and they're usually they've they've got a pretty good setup. But chickens, oh, my goodness. If you've seen where your chicken meat comes from, it's just disgraceful.
0: So one of the things they've done here is on very rare occasions, you'll see a truckload of chickens driving down the road, and it's just awful looking where they're going to be processed. And generally, those trucks roll about 3 o'clock in the morning. So they hide even the transport where they have to be transported from one point to another for processing because it's just stacks and stacks and stacks. of These birds just defecating on each other. And And they're sick
1: sick animals. That's what I think. And they're grown way
0: too fast under terrible conditions. Beef, I would say, in this country is produced very ethically up until it's finished when they send those animals to to put weight on and finish them at these CAFOs, especially the large ones, that's where it all goes wrong. And, so if you can find beef that you're buying from a local person that doesn't go through that process here, you've got very ethically raised beef.
1: Yeah, yeah. Here, it's very much the same as well, and you know, when they do fatten them up, that's what's not good for you anyway. So yeah. you're just skipping yeah. the part that's bad for your health. And it's certainly. the way
0: they're fattening, and they're cramming them full of, of grain and soy and corn, and, and mm. then we're, we're cramming massive amounts of phytoestrogen into this animal's fat, and mm. you know, you could just take a little longer, and we I just did a show yesterday with texas slim on this you know you take longer and finish them on grass and you get as all the flavor you'd want from fat but you mm. get a healthy animal that's not inflammatory it doesn't have its omega-3 omega-6 ratios just jacked up sideways um it's it
1: yeah kangaroo meat is also a meat that's quite good for you in terms of nobody can really farm them yeah. They can jump They can jump over any fence. So yeah. instead of being farmed, they're usually culled. So when their population gets a bit too high, they go out, they, they shoot the big ones, the big males, the older males. And then that is actually a really – and they look at this meat and they go, well, why are all these health profiles so yeah. amazing and high? And why is it so high in protein? Why is it so good for you? It's because the animal lived naturally. The animal lived we naturally. Didn't, we didn't interfere with it. It's y'all's venison,
0: basically. It's it's you know we have we have white-tailed deer. You guys have kangaroos. Yeah. And they're actually I've I've had kangaroo meat and it's very similar to venison. And I would say it's a little lighter. Um, I guess is a way to put it. It's a little lighter in color. It's not quite as red, very red, but not as red, and it's a little leaner. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, it's I think it's pretty good. I won't turn it down. You're also a beekeeper. Um. Can you, can you kind of talk a little bit about that? I think it's a very good option for people in smaller properties because bees will go find their stuff two miles out.
1: Yeah. Well, actually I'm not anymore. Yeah. Yeah. The lovely, uh, government decided that they would have to kill my bees because we had a varroa mite outbreak. So yeah, unfortunately (sighs) in my area, all of the bees have been destroyed. I don't know how long they're going to keep that up for. Um, Certainly when I had the bees, yeah, it was definitely fantastic. It's great to have bees in an urban environment. They're definitely really good for pollination. Since my bees were taken away, I've noticed a big drop in pollination, and it's causing a bit of a nightmare for me and other people in the permaculture group because we're all seed savers. So we're all kind of having to go out there with a paintbrush and a cup now to try and pollinate everything. The upside to this is Australian native bees, are still fine, so I will probably get invest in some of those. So sugar bag bees, Australian native stingless bees, you don't get as much honey, but the pollination rates are actually much higher. You do need to take more care of them, which is some people would think would be counterintuitive, but the native bees can't handle the temperature fluctuations as well as the European bees. Mm. Of course, European bees evolved in a temperate climate, whereas the native Australian bees are not used to the fluctuations, some of which I think are artificially heightened by the fact that we have added all this concrete and we've cut down so many trees. So you've got to do a bit more work in insulating their habitat and just checking up on their temperature and things like that. But, yeah, that's – unfortunately, that's pretty much where that's at. Um, I don't know if that's sort of made, uh, made the headlines or anything like that. Probably not. But uh, there's certainly a lot of very angry beekeepers where I live.
0: It's, it's not always the government's solution that we're going to save a thing by getting rid of it. It, it. it it boggles the mind. It's why I'm an anarchist. I'll just leave well, it at that. Yeah, um, I
1: mean, they we have the DPI, which is the Department of Primary Industries. And I always just call them the Department of Poisoning Everything because yeah. that's, that's their solution to everything is just poison all the time. And I'm like, wow, okay. Good, good job, guys.
0: We've had issues with the mics here, as Renegade Butcher saying in the comments there. But what we found is a lot of the beekeepers here that are doing what they call small cell keeping, where they have a slightly smaller uh, comb size. So when they put the foundation in, they reduce the the hex size by a very small amount, and it, for one reason or another, has been extremely effective in reducing. Mite uh, infections and problems in the hives. And it's also been good at reducing uh, colony collapse disorder as well. And
1: yeah,
0: I, I think we're seeing more and more stuff like that come out where there's solutions that are natural. Paul, you're a mushroom person, so you probably know of Paul Stamets and he's hmm. literally built beehives out of fungi. Yeah.
1: Right? I mean, sometimes just not, it's, it's an interesting situation because I do believe that when you've got a native, uh, you've got a native animal, and it's it is worthwhile to protect that from foreign disease to to slowly introduce foreign diseases to give it a chance because you can have native populations wiped out by a foreign disease but when you've got two introduced species it's a little bit like what are we doing you know they're both introduced species they've both got a competitive advantages surely we can work out a way for them to adjust to each other so Like you were saying, the small hex size, also we've got a lot of natural beekeepers in our beekeeping group where they let the bees determine their own hex size. So it's very much creating an environment that is most close to what they would naturally do. Kind of like a top bar
0: situation or something like that, yeah.
1: Yeah, and but for me, I've always had uh, vented bottom boards with diatomaceous earth in the bottom. So... Yeah, so that is actually really good for preventing hive beetle, but it also helps the bees to naturally get rid of their own viral mite infection as well. So that mm. was how I would deal with pests for my bees, was just having a vented mesh bottom board with diatomaceous earth in the bottom. And yeah. I use the diatomaceous earth for the chickens as well. So once that diatomaceous earth fills up with hive beetle and things like that, I chuck it, chuck it straight out into the chicken coop and then they get to eat the bugs and the di- diatomaceous earth dries up their coop a little bit as well helps them with mites too
0: No we we're already talking about the fact that you you you're a vegetarian so you're not eating meat so I know you're not eating rabbits but you keep them and I've heard from a lot of people that keep rabbits that do keep them for meat that even if they didn't have them for meat they would keep them for fertility alone
1: Oh uh, okay I always say this to people who they want to have some kind of animal system in order to get compost. And they yeah. often look to things like chickens and quails. And I love chickens and quails. Don't get me wrong. But in terms of if, if your output that you're actually looking for is compost, I've never seen anything that creates compost like a rabbit. Like every day I am taking out massive like litter trays full mm-hmm. of like nitrogen um, potassium, everything. I've actually got a post on Facebook. Maybe I'll. Did you want me to have a look if I can? I've actually got the statistics for because. Yeah, sure. Because sure. it's come up in our group so many times. I actually yeah. did research it, so let me have as, a look. As to here. what
0: they produce. As yeah. to what
1: the actual
0: like different requirements are. Is. And I know one of the really cool things about it is that you can use it. You don't have to compost it. You can put it straight onto a garden bed. And that's, yeah. that's pretty unique in the world of manures. It's, you know, they call it hot, hot manure. And you don't want to use straight on chicken or cow or yep. anything like that. Now I'll tell you, my ducks, they go wherever they want to and it doesn't mess nothing up. But that's a, that's a big difference yep. between putting it somewhere and having it spread out.
1: So I've got it here. So so it's 3 to 4.8% nitrogen, 1 to 528 potassium. 1 to 3 K. So if you look at, for instance, that compared to cattle manure, you've got double the nitrogen, you've got triple, more than triple the potassium, and you've got double, yep, you've got double the potassium, sorry, and triple the phosphorus. Mm. So for worm castings as well, it's about similar. So in terms of the actual, just the NPK that you're getting, you're looking at triple, double what you would get from other manures. You've also got magnesium, boron, zinc, magnesium, sulfur, copper, cobalt. So they're eating predominantly dark leafy greens, particularly if you're raising them yourself. So we know that dark leafy greens are extremely high in these micronutrients. And yes, you can put it straight onto your beds as a soil conditioner. So there's no need to actually compost them in a system. You just kind of scatter it around and dig it in a little bit, and that's fantastic. And just the – I mean, I would say 10 times what a chicken produces is what a rabbit will produce in terms of actual compost and manure.
0: Well, one real great thing about them, you mentioned they eat a lot of dark leafy grains, is they're one of the backyard livestock that you can pretty much feed off your own production 100%. I don't necessarily – Recommend people do that. I think having a good quality like rabbit pellet or something that can be fed to them to make sure they're never put to the point of being too hungry is a good idea. But you know, we we've had our, our expert council member Nick Ferguson on talk, you know, repeatedly about using fodder trees like willow and white mulberry, uh, good good lawn and a, a bagging lawnmower, and I mean, you yeah. can feed bunnies because they. I mean I have rabbits here. I don't have any in cages, but I have cottontails, you know, as long as they're smart <laughs> enough to stay close enough to the fence to get through before the dogs get them, they they do just fine here and it's a, not an easy environment. Yeah. So if they can live here on their own, then what's here can feed them if that makes sense.
1: They can live just about anywhere on their own. So there's yeah. rabbits in the desert and there's rabbits in Siberia. Yep. So so long as you're not I think with any system, and this is very much comes back to sort of the permaculture thinking, is the more that you control it, so the more that you're taking that animal out of nature and putting it in an artificial environment, the harder it is for you to keep that animal healthy. Correct. Whereas if you're, so yeah, if you've got an indoor pet rabbit, you need to put effort in. You've got to look up, look, it needs 80% hay, it needs 10% this, you've got to actually put a bit of effort in, you've got to cut its claws, you've got to feed it, but if you can let the rabbit live naturally naturally and spend time in like a, you know, caged outdoor area where it has wood, where it can do its own dental care, it can sharpen its own claws, it can dig, it can eat the grass that it would normally eat, you almost don't have to do anything. So, yeah, it just... It just depends on how you live and how it fits in with your lifestyle. The other big upside to rabbits is they're obviously, like, really popular (laughs) with children.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You don't
1: have a hard time getting the kids to keep an eye on the bunnies because they are very cute.
0: And are you using some other ways to to generate some extra income, like Airbnb, I think, and plant sales is what I've got here?
1: Yeah. So even though I – have a uh, well-paying job um, that I went to university for and so on and so forth. I have really big dreams of like (laughs) permaculture projects. (laughs) So I have so many things that I want to do. I've renovated this whole house. I've added a story to it. I've changed the whole block. And now I really want a sort of passive outdoor greenhouse where I want it, like an outdoor bathroom with some wicking beds and some kind of ponds. Anyway, Look, the crux of the matter is all of these ideas cost money. Quite sure. a bit of money. So in order to sort of supplement my income and I guess a functioning kind of home economics where in Australia and probably in most places in the world these days, your property is the most expensive thing that you own. It's the asset that you're putting the most money in. It's what you're paying for. So it makes sense that you would want that asset to give you something in return other than the eight hours you spend sleeping on your pillow. So... That was where I came to this and I thought, well, how can I get a return off my most expensive asset, my property? And I decided to rent out the bottom story of my house on Airbnb. So I've made that a self-contained flat. It's got their own bathroom, kitchen, two bedrooms. Someone's staying there right now, actually. And that's rented out for, you know, $200 a night. And basically, I block it out maybe 50% of the time so that I can have my own parties and things like that. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> my little panda bunny there. That was a uh, one of my permaculture group people had to get rid of a whole bed of parsley and that was the best day of her life. Cuz <laughs> I just came in with this entire raised bed full of parsley for her. But yes, uh so again, having things like rabbits, chickens, a lot of people from the city really appreciate when they come with their kids. The kids get to come collect the eggs with me, do things like that. They can pat the bunnies and then that's Probably the easiest money you'll ever make because honestly you're, you know, if you're doing your own cleaning, I'm not, I've got one of the cleaners from work to come and help me out, but you're basically doing a turnover and that's it and your money's just coming in for that. And then as well, I've decided that when now that my fruit trees and my grapevines and all those things are getting to a size where I really need to prune them back quite hard, instead of throwing all those prunings away, I'm just sticking them in a pot full of dirt. And then it turns out that every mulberry pruning, every grape pruning, I can sell that for about $20. So that really adds up as well. And that's kind of all just going into my greenhouse fund at the moment. (laughs) So it's not money that I depend on. It's money to pay for the expensive things that I really want.
0: It's making, making the hobby pay for itself because the hobby pays for itself in two ways. One is, if I, if I grow it and I eat, I don't have to buy it. And then the other way is through money. Um I do a lot with outdoor ponds and stuff. And every once in a while, we'll sell a koi for a couple hundred, $300. Uh, or we'll sell a, a 50 cent goldfish for 50 bucks. Cause yuppies, when you call them a- a- Asian heirloom carp, they buy them for their backyard expensive ponds. And you know, there's all these ways to monetize our production. And it's, you know we we started this conversation with how you grew up and a little bit about how I grew up and I always grew up with the mindset that this was your biggest asset the the property that you owned and it needed to produce for you when I started the show fifteen years ago, the concept that I brought to that was from home to homestead that most people they're 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 they they think of their home. And the whole property, I'm talking not just the house itself, but the whole property they think of it as an asset, but for most people it's actually a liability. If they lost mm-hmm. their job for two months, it's gone, they're in foreclosure with it. It's a it's a place that absorbs money. And our our, our, our ancestors didn't think that way. They thought from a standpoint of you know, I've got this amazing thing, even if it was relatively small, and what can it do and what can it produce for me? Mm-hmm. And they made it productive. I mean, I know my grandparents did. I mean, it was uh, everybody around us that grew up, they made it productive because it was what you had. It's and, weird cause
1: the economic system still recognizes that. So you pay per square meter. Yeah. Now, when we think about it as an asset that's producing something, it makes sense that you would pay for an extra square meter because that's an extra square meter of potential production. Mm-hmm. But in terms of if all you're going to do is like once every month, every oh, not even every month, once every three months, you're going to have a party and you're going to have an extra chair for a friend, is is that <laughs> worth the, yeah. you know, the square meterage that you paid for it? Probably not. So it's, uh, it's interesting how there's a disconnect there with how people think about things. And a lot of the new developments in sort of Western Sydney and these kind of um, – Different to where I am at the moment but other kind of places is they've got these like McMansion type houses that are just like these cookie cutter like blocks and you're maybe about like a meter from your neighbor Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like you've got no backyard and The Verge, you usually park your car on it because you've got like three cars per family and it's just like why don't you just live in an apartment? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, like it would be so much more economical if you're not going to have any kind of backyard to just, yeah, live in an apartment. And
0: compared to for people that are on the video instead of the audio version, (laughs) what you're seeing right now, that's that's off your Instagram. So I'm assuming that's part of your backyard.
1: Yeah, that's the view from my balcony. So I've done the opposite of that. And what I've done is bought a small house. So it's still a suburban lot, which is 750 meters squared. But my house is only 80 meters squared. So it's a small house, but instead of I've gone down, and like I said, my plan is to move the bathroom into a semi-outdoor area so that when I have baths, and at the moment I can't really fit a bath in my bathroom, but what I want to do is put it in a greenhouse so that when I'm having my baths, when I do want a hot bath in winter, that water is going to go straight into these wicking beds and into this tropical greenhouse that I want. So I'm just trying to be clever with the space that I actually need so that I do have this beautiful big backyard.
0: So so tell us about, and we'll, we'll finish up with this, because you have it, your upcoming dream project. What is yeah. what is the dream for this uh, passive solar greenhouse extension?
1: Yeah, so my current climate is warm temperate, which is a fantastic climate to grow in. However, things like vanilla bean, chocolate, some sapotes, kind of those more exotic tropicals, I can't grow outdoors. I would need to do it in a greenhouse. So I've got this area at the back of my property that was this weird little alleyway. And so we've had quite a bit of rain. We've had La Nina weather pattern down here. And I'm on clay shale, so clay and rock, which in the drought I couldn't touch. But when we had this epic amount of rain come through, I've got it with my dad and my brother. We've got an excavator and we've just cut out a little bit of that uh, slope. And then that then backs onto my brick house, so brick concrete roof tile. And then we've poured a concrete slab down and then just put a timber retaining wall between the shale and this little space. So that has produced something that is extremely well insulated. Currently, that's where my nursery is. So that's what I'm using to try and create a bit of extra income but eventually what I want to do is extend my roof out with some greenhouse material, close that area in, in order to get some privacy so my neighbors are not forced to watch me in the bath. I'm gonna just try and put a canopy in or maybe put some bamboo or even just have some devil's ivy growing up on the ceiling so that it basically, I'm trying to create a tropical microclimate and then I'm gonna have these wicking beds. So at the moment, all of my water from my roof is flowing to the top point of my house and then I've got this graveled area with some lemongrass and some rushes and some reeds and I'm treating that like a grey water system. I'm also just manually running my washing machine water out there that way as well. So all that water flows out down into these decorative garden beds that the people who stay in the Airbnb, that's their view, is these beautiful flower beds. And I'm just into planting with some vegetables like some tomatoes and some red-veined sorrel. That system, I'm then going to incorporate these wicking beds where then all of my grey water from bathing and showering, as well as the washing machine, will run through these wicking beds and then go out into the same system it's going out to currently. But because I'm going to have the hot water heater out there, I'm going to be having hot showers and I'm going to add some kind of aquaponics. I haven't quite decided on that system in there. I'm just trying to create, yeah, just a tropical microclimate with these wicking beds where I can grow some tropical food. And also just have a beautiful outdoor bath and shower, semi-outdoor, semi-outdoor.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. And probably
1: put like a wood burner in the corner as well, just so that if it does, if we do get some uncharacteristically cool temperatures, I can just chuck some wood in that. I've got an endless supply of wood, so easy peasy.
0: Gotcha. Well, hey, this has been really great. You've got a really awesome Instagram. I've pulled up a few photos on it, but people should totally check it out. You've also got a Facebook page. I've got both of those in the uh, the audio notes uh, right down in the video notes down there, folks. <laughs> for those on the video, there's a link, and it'll take you straight over there. And if you go yeah. there right now, you'll find absolutely nothing because we're not quite done yet. But about one hour after Clara and I wrap up here, which will be very, very soon, yeah. uh, the audio will go out. And all the stuff we talked about, there's links for all of it that will be with the audio posting that goes out into iTunes and Stitcher and fountain and all that other stuff. Uh, Claire, this has been fun. Uh, nice. I, I think it really opens people's eyes. I cause I, one of the biggest things I get from people is I don't have a lot of land like you do. And I'm like, well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> like honestly, the most productive by square foot systems there are, are these suburban systems because you can manage with an intensity that once you get out in the five acre range, you're not going to do Once you get out to a three acre range, two acres, you're not going to do it anymore.
1: Yeah. It is, you don't have the time. Like, you don't no, It'll wear you out.
0: Yeah. It'll wear you out. And <laughs> some of the most impressive systems I've seen have been, and, and square meters in my American head doesn't work out, but they've been, you know, a 10th, 20th acre post stamp yeah. systems because the person is then forced to figure out what, can I do with this square foot, right? Like if I, if I don't use it, then I'm, I'm you know, if I have a thousand square feet and I don't use it, I've given up 1,000th of my potential where if I don't use a square foot on five acres, I can't even do the fraction with that. I, I don't know what it is, you know? <laughs> and so it, when you start looking at it that way and you got a thousand square foot and you got a hundred square feet of the area, hmm. that's 10% of everything you've got. And you'll
1: you'll lose fertility as well because trying to keep up the fertility in an area that that is that big. Because most of our topsoil is depleted. The idea that you're going to find somewhere that has this incredibly rich, amazing topsoil and that you're going to be able to maintain that without actually living in the forest is extremely difficult. But if you've got a small lot, like I've got a bin at the corner where people walk their dogs. I tell everyone to put their food scraps in that. That helps. That goes to the chickens. So I've got the chicken manure. I've got the rabbit manure and all of that, as well as like just drawing in birds and things like that. I'm able to actually keep this fertility up, but I know a lot of people where they're having to import all of those things. Yeah. And having, a you know, your SUV full of manure, not a lot of fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or you're running around like me trying to, to bribe, uh, tree trimmers with, with 12 packs of beer. So they'll <laughs> drop their wood chips off. You know, I've got about 30 yards of wood chips right now. Uh, but I, I could use 300. I mean, and, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't run out of uses for them. Uh, when you get on a bigger, and my property's not that big. I have a three acre property. So like, <laughs> I think that's like a hectare and a half. Right. Yeah. So like it's not that big, but it's, it, it will wear you out. You'll never, yeah, doing the type of thing we're talking about, you'll never use a hundred percent of it. But when you get on these properties, you know, half acre down, you can really turn that restriction into a benefit, I guess is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. The more restrictions that you have, and that's why I try not to get too upset about, you know, roadblocks that come along because in reality, the people that are kind of causing you problems, it's usually the government, yeah. you know, they're actually just kind of making you be smarter. Making you think, you know, because that is life, you know, if it isn't something that's artificially happening, like I said, a hailstorm, a fire, a flood, things come up. And the more you're used to dealing with restrictions, the more resilient your design becomes, the more redundancies you have built in.
0: Yeah, one of the best quotes that I ever heard come out of Jeff Lawton's mouth was that the more restrictions upon the design, the more elegant the final design is if the designer is up to the task. And, and that's kind of what we're talking about. There's there's multiples of restrictions. A so mountain's a restriction. a uh, government code is a restriction. And it's either how do I design around it or not let them know that I've ignored it. I mean <laughs> <both of> those <laughs> yeah. are great design tactics. You know, you can't have chickens, they're not yep. chickens, they pets. And that's where
1: building. Yeah. Building community is really important when you are dealing with a lot of restrictions, because, again, you know, if the more people you have connections with, the most people that know you, the more people that like you, the more people you have to help you with these problems and the less likely you're going to get complaints and have issues. And it's just a better way. It's just a happier way to live.
0: If you give your neighbor a half dozen eggs a week, they probably won't complain about your chickens, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> I <laughs> and, just
1: say, oh, what, what is that cockatoo that's been making noise
0: yeah. this morning? Yeah, yeah.
1: it's a cockatoo, I think. Okay, it's goodbye.
0: Like, <laughs> cockatoo three. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> hey, this has been great, Claire. I really appreciate it. Again, we will have all the, uh, the links and, and what have you. In the show notes, it'll go about an hour from now. Thank you yeah. for being with us today. Thank you it's, for getting up early to be with us. I know That's all right. You're on a it's different just,
1: um, It's just Clara's urban mini farm everywhere if you want to search for it. So, so, I'm the right. only one, I'm pretty sure.
0: <laughs> I, I, like I said, I will make sure all those links are available to everybody. And thanks for being with us today.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Well, great conversation. Uh, really great of her to, to, uh, to get up pretty early in the morning to be on the air with us. Uh, we did run the live feed a couple hours later to uh, accommodate her with that, even though she was willing to do it completely in, like, super early darkness hours, and I didn't think that was right, so we pushed it out a couple hours. Uh, anyway, learned a lot. Hope you did, too. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Want to remind you guys here at the end, one of the ways you can help support this show and the work that we do it's just to do your online shopping at tspaz.com, tspa Right now, I do have out a list of the top 14 items out of the Tspaz catalog that I recommend for Christmas presents. Because people always ask for that this time of year. A lot of cool stuff there. Link in the show notes. But I also picked one of those specifically to talk about today. Because I think even if you don't want to get this as a gift for somebody, maybe it's a gift for yourself and we are entering that time of year where we have lots of downtime it's a good time to get into like intellectual learning of new skills and when it comes to herbs even if you don't go out and you know wildcraft the herbs yourself herbs are something that are very affordable you can buy whole dry herbs and things like that so this is a great time of year to turn yourself into an herbalist You know, we talk about dealing with the systems of support being down and what have you, and having the ability to use plants to heal is one of the most valuable skills skills you can develop. Well, here's the good news. You don't need to take an herbal course. I've actually been approached by quite a few herbalists, master herbalists and things like that, that want to sell a product to you, generally like an online course or something like that. They're usually several hundred dollars or more. And it's not that I doubt these people and their capability. It really isn't. It's that I know what you're going to get at that level is going to be less than you can get by spending $23 on the book that I'm recommending today. I know that it is. Now, it might be right for some people. I'm not crapping on it, and if you're out there and you're like, I listen to this jerk, and I have a course, and he won't sell Yeah, I might not sell I'm not saying don't buy it. I'm saying I just don't want to get in a third-party relationship like that. And some people need kind of to be walked through and whatever. But this book is called The Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook, and it's by James Green. And it focuses on 30 herbs that are very common, and you can probably find all of them in your local area growing in the wild or your own backyard, and if not, you can easily obtain them. The other commonality between all these herbs is they're all inherently safe. It's nothing that you put too much in, you're going to grow a tentacle out of your ear or die, okay? They also cover just about everything that a normal person would ever develop their own treatment for it 's not going to cure seventh stage meta- you know meta- metabolic cancer or something like that, but the stuff that we would use herbs for. It covers all the herbal actions. I've done whole episodes. I've done 40 herbal actions in four episodes, 10 each. It covers all of that and more. It's a big part of where I learned what I know about herbs. It covers all of the ways that you can prepare herbs that make sense for a person, including how to do things with like making your own small stills out of stuff you probably already own. It doesn't require to go invest in a bunch of money or, or go buy a whole bunch of stuff. This is all the way that your great-grandmother probably practiced herbalism. Okay? And this dude is smart. He doesn't try to be smart. The guy comes to his teaching with humility. It's very easy to understand. But if you take this book and you start using it right from the get-go, it's going to start out teaching you how to make a tincture out of dandelion. So you come right out of the gate learning how to do a thing. It will teach you all the stuff I said, but if you progress through it, it will take each type of herbal preparation, like a tincture or a poultice or a tea or whatever, and it will walk you through how to do it. And if you'll go through this book, it's about 300 plus pages, and you'll follow that. When you come out the other end of it, you just got like a course in herbalism that one of these people that want to sell through me to you would charge you 500 bucks for. That's what you just got for $23. And then my final endorsement on this book. I have a lot of material that I have saved up on how to do things with herbs. It's one of my passions. I really find it amazing. You know, my grandfather when I was a little kid, I remember the first time I was exposed to herbalism, he put plantain and comfrey on a pretty nasty cut on his finger. And in a couple of days, it looked like it was completely healed. And I was like, my granddad's sorcerer, right? So, I mean, I go way I was like five years old when that happened. And so I go way back with this stuff. And if you said, Jack, we're going to go up to your personal library and take every book you have on herbs, and we're going to delete everything you have on herbs off of your, off of your computers, You'll be left with one resource only. Pick it now. I wouldn't have to think. I would pick this book. This is the one book that I would have above all others on the concept of verbalism. It's 23 bucks. And by the way, I got my first copy of this back in like 1998, and I'm still recommending this book today that strongly. Just a thought, and again, if you want something else and you're looking for something for presents... Get today's episode. Go down in the show notes, and you'll see a link that says Top T Spaz Christmas Gifts for 2022. You can see all of those. These are all items I've sold thousands upon thousands of with no complaints, and people really like them and like to get them as gifts. And you can help me out whether it's gift shopping, shopping for yourself, anything. If you're going to start your shop, if, you, if you're going to shop online, just start at tspaz.com and go from there. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I appreciate uh, having you guys today. We're going to stick with permaculture tomorrow, though we're really going to call it homesteading. But homesteading and permaculture kind of go together like peanut butter and jelly. Um, We're going to talk tomorrow about the third pillar in homesteading. So we're doing a series on the four pillars. The first one that we did was gardening. Then we did backyard livestock earlier this week. The next one we're going to talk about perennials in the backyard and backyard herbs and foraging. So that'll fit really good with what I was just talking about. And then, it probably won't happen till we come back after the Christmas break, the fourth pillar that we're going to cover is foraging and local trade knowledge. You put those four together, you start living like our grandparents did. So tune in tomorrow. That will also be done with a live stream. We'll be going live tomorrow at 11 a.m., uh, you can always find out about all the upcoming live streams where, tspclive.com, tspclive.com. The only way you won't find out something about one coming up going there is if you go there, it's one we already did and I ain't put the new one in yet. That happens generally the day of early in the morning or the day before late in the day uh, of the live stream. I get that up there, but how would you make sure you don't ever miss it? Get on the Telegram group. Go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Get Social and get on our Telegram group or just our announcement channel. I always put stuff out about the live streams the day of, usually a couple, three hours before they go live. If you're on YouTube and you're following me on YouTube, make sure you don't just subscribe. Click the little bell. That way you should, I'm not going to guarantee you, but you should get a notification when I go live or when I upload new videos. With that... Hope you guys enjoyed it. I'll catch you tomorrow. It's been Jack Spearco with another episode of the Survival Podcast. They keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay.